thank you, Dr. Cooper, for that wonderfully kind and generous introduction. It's a great pleasure to be here with all of you tonight at Thomas Aquinas College. I've had the pleasure of teaching and advising many of your illustrious alumni um, at Notre Dame over the past few years, and so this is my first visit to campus, first visit to the mothership, as it were. And so it's wonderful to see the excellent environment for learning that you have the beautiful campus and clearly an environment that nurtures the intellectual life in a very special way. So I'm very happy to be here with you. My talk tonight is going to be um, drawn from some material that I'm working on, on in a book project that I have on knowing as being, Aquinas' metaphysics of intellect. And this, it's a, been a work in progress for a few years and it's just about at the end. The material that we're gonna talk about tonight is taken from the first part of the book. So I wanna begin by thinking about a common way of um, differentiating uh, knowledge in, in much of the literature on Thomas Aquinas. So we might think, first of all, that I am over here, if there was a tree, I would point to it, but you'll just have to imagine a tree, but if we're talking about knowledge, the example has to be a tree. So I am over here, and the tree is over there, and I am spatially separated from the tree, to be sure, but not only spatially, but also ontologically. We are two different substances. I am me, a human being, the tree is a distinct individual. And yet I see the tree, and I know its essence. So how does my mind access essences instantiated in real-world entities? In much of the contemporary literature, Thomas Aquinas is often presented as the poster child for the realist view that the intellect in some way really accesses extramental essences, becoming wholly unified with them due to his assertion of what is sometimes called the doctrine of identity of intellect and intelligibles. I know some of you have encountered this in your, in your readings. But can an immaterial intellect really become identical with the essence of tree existing as this extramental, dimensionally extended, leafy tree? The metaphysical difficulties of such a view have spurred readers of Aquinas to deflate claims of strict identity to mean something closer to likeness, sometimes described as formal identity. So rather than saying that the form in my mind is strictly identified, or even that my intellect is strictly identified with the essence of the thing in the world, we tend to prefer to say that the form of my intellect is like, or a likeness of, or related to the form of the thing, and to describe that as a reduced kind of identity. Now the goal of this lecture is to make the case that when Aquinas speaks of the intellect in act, and the intelligible in act as identical, he is not discussing the intellect's relationship to objects other than itself. For instance, treeness in its extramental existence. Rather, what he's doing is explaining what intellect actually is. So to put it another way, he's not making a psychological or epistemological claim about how our intellect relates to the extramental world, but instead a metaphysical claim about what an activated intellect is in itself, or what kind of being an intellect has when it is actively thinking about treeness. 
On the reading I'm going to defend tonight, the identity of intellect and intelligibles is the core doctrine of what one might call Aquinas' metaphysics of intellection. To an extent that I think remains to be fully appreciated, Aquinas analyzes intellection in terms of the actualizing of a certain kind of being to which our soul is in potency, akin to the actualizing of water's potency to heat or skin's potency to become sunburnt. And the identity doctrine, as I read it, describes this kind of being that an actualized intellect has, namely, a curious kind of being that is both intellectual and intelligible, such that to be, actual, uh, to be intellectually active is to be realized as an actually intelligible entity, and vice versa. And this convertibility of intellectuality and intelligibility characterizes entities along the entire spectrum, ranging from human intellects to angelic intellects to the divine intellect. So before I get into the weeds here, I want to make a clarification about two kinds of identity claims in Aquinas that are often confused with each other. So there's two different formulations that are treated as the same kind of formulation. He'll say sometimes the intellect in actuality is the intelligible in actuality, and there the phrase is intelligible in actu. But he will also say the intellect in actuality is the known in actuality, and there the phrase is intellectum in actu. Readers typically treat intelligible and intellectum as equivalent. English translations usually do not differentiate between them, and so those two formulations are typically taken as interchangeable. But part of what I'm arguing is that they are not always interchangeable. And what I'm going to argue is that intelligible in Aquinas is a technical term referring exclusively to a kind of substantial being rather than, as typically taken, a functionalist notion of whatever the intellect can or does know. What is actually intelligible is incorporeal. Indeed, it's an actual intellect, as we'll see. So that means that it would be incorrect to say that the tree, or even the essence of a tree, is actually intelligible, as it is in the tree. We'll see why later. In contrast, the term known, or intellectum, is a more flexible term in Aquinas with at least two senses. In the first sense, known is interchangeable with in intelligible. They both refer to incorporeal intellectual being, so sometimes that's how it shows up in the text. But in the second sense, much more frequently, known refers to the thing, usually something extramental, to which intellect becomes related or ordered in cognizing. So in that latter sense, the known is the thing that causes cognition, or to which cognition is ordered, which Aquinas also calls the res intellecta, or the res shita, or the shibile, or idquod intelligitor. These are all interchangeable. In this second sense of known, we can find in Aquinas something like a functionalist sense of anything to which the intellect can be or is actually related by knowing. For Aquinas, any being at all, whether existing inside or outside the soul, can be actually known in this sense, provided some intellect is knowing it. So for instance, in De Potentia 8.1, he writes, the known thing, res intellecta, is sometimes outside the intellect. And by way of contrast, you can consider what he says about intelligibles just before that, in De Potentia 7.10, he says, the thing that is outside the soul is in every way outside the intelligible genus. 
as well as Summa Contra Gentiles 298, quote, the intelligible is within the intellect with respect to its being intelligized, namely when it's actual. Um, so the implication here is that there's a version of the identity doctrine using the word intellectum, which does actually set up a relationship between the knowing intellect and a known extramental thing. And in those contexts, if you, if you check the text, you'll see that Aquinas always immediately qualifies the identity claim, quickly adding that what is really happening is the intellect receives a form from the thing. And that's what sets up the traditional question in the literature about the relationship of the form in the thing and the form in the intellect. I want to emphasize that I am not concerned with any of that in this talk. What I want to show is there's another version of the identity doctrine using intelligibile, which addresses something quite different. And that's what our project is tonight to try to figure out what it actually means. So what we're going to do tonight is first of all to talk about the bigger philosophical picture, how we should model um, this thinking about um, knowing, how Aquinas models it on my view. And then secondly, I want to lay out three theses about intelligible being, namely arguing that there is a genus of intelligible being that is the genus of intellects and that it is self-manifesting. That's the core of the paper. If there's time, I'll also get to talk a little bit about some of the historical influences on Aquinas that make him think this way and what that means for human beings as entities that are able to acquire this kind of intelligible being. Okay, first section, connecting versus being. So let's start by considering what kind of imagery we tend to use in thinking about knowing. Much of our thinking and writing about the mind today is dominated by the spatial imagery of attaining and containing. So think of all the times that we say things like um, that objects are presented to us or the way in which we imagine the mind is an inner space or an inner eye to which those objects are presented. Or perhaps we speak of grasping as though the mind is something that reaches out and gets hold of objects. This imagery sets up a category of models that we can call connective models of mind. And connective models are rooted in what at first seems quite innocuous of an assumption. Um, mind is mind, world is world, one is not the other. So it's very natural for us to imagine them as separated from us by a space across from each other. And we imagine cognition is somehow constituting the bridging of that space. So we imagine that to cognize the world, mind has to attain the world, either directly or indirectly with the help of an intermediary. And when we're using, describing this attaining, we tend to use tactile imagery like grasping or reaching and visual imagery. Something appears or comes up into consciousness or confronts the subject. Now, connective models of mind do have a long and indeed noble intellectual pedigree in the history of philosophy. So Augustine describes thought as occurring only, quote, when an object is placed within the sight of the mind, forming the sight of the mind. And Locke states that the mind has no other immediate object but its own ideas, which it alone does and can contemplate. But, I want to argue, connective models have also been wrongly read into other theories where they don't belong, including that of the thinker I want to discuss today, Thomas Aquinas. 
Connective models have shaped readings of Aquinas for a long time, as evidenced by the intensity with which scholars have focused on intelligible species as the most important facet of his intellectual theory. The major concern has been with whether the intellect and the world, fixed in their various places in the space of reality, are really able to reach each other. The obstacle to connection is the intervening distance, and connection is achieved by having one of the separated parties cross the space somehow. Intelligible species are supposed to be the mechanism whereby the intellect becomes able to close the gap. So as the great scholar Joseph Owens put it, puts it, quote, something from outside cognition must get into cognition. And once this happens, Aquinas's mind can, as another scholar puts it, reach up to the extramental reality, or in another formulation, engage directly with reality, yet another formulation, or arrive at being such as it is in itself, travel language. Now this connective model, I contend, is foreign to Aquinas's theory of mind and mental activities. For Aquinas, the philosophical project of explaining mental activities is not a project of setting up the right connections with instrument, intramental or extramental things, but rather a metaphysical project of describing how mental being comes to be in us and what its properties and possible actions are. So here's how I'm suggesting that we should think about this. Creatures have potentials for acquiring all sorts of different kinds of being, heat, color, muscle tone, etc. Among these kinds of being are various kinds of mental being, visual, auditory, tactile, imaginative, or intellectual, each of which has as its essential property a distinctive feel, a conscious feel of what it is like. And our conscious experience precisely consists in the realization, or to put it in active terms, the performance, of those mental kinds of being in us. They all go together to make up our conscious experience. So in this, on this model, conscious experience does not consist in setting up the right sorts of connections with things that are other and outside. Rather, it consists in a kind of metaphysical growth we acquire new kinds of being, episodes of consciousness, conscious being, to which we were naturally in potency, like water becoming hot or a sapling acquiring new leaves and branches. The conscious being that we gain is an expression of the beings that surround us and continually act on us, making us in their image. But knowing is not a way of connecting with them across an intervening space, rather, Knowing is being, consciously, according to the image they impart to us. I want to call this the metaphysical model of mind. Now, I can't explore all the implications of reading Aquinas this way. There are many. That's one of the things my book tries to do, and it takes a long time. So what I will try to do today is just uncover the foundations of this metaphysical model making the case for reading Aquinas' account of intellect as a metaphysics of intellectual being. So my fundamental thesis here is that for Aquinas, intellectual thought is a genus of real being to which self-manifestation belongs essentially. 
I will break down this claim into the following three. These are on your handout, I hope. Um, yes, marked thesis one, two, and three. So the first one is intelligibility is a genus of being. Secondly, intelligibility is convertible with intellectuality. And thirdly, intellectual intelligible being is essentially self-manifesting. All right, so now we're on section two. And we're going to start with the first thesis. Intelligibility is a genus of being. So when we use the term intelligible, I think we're often misled by the ible ending, which is a sort of similar ambiguity also in, in Latin. It tends to connote for us a capacity to be affected in some way, right? So something that's flammable is able to be burned. Something that's frangible is able to be broken, right? And so when we hear about something that's intelligible, we tend to formulate that to ourselves as something that is able to be known. We think of it as a capacity in things that makes them able for us to enter into a relationship with them. Now, there's all sorts of problems already if we set it up that way. It's a very common way of thinking about the term intelligibility. Um, that's, that's what I would call a functional notion of intelligibility, where it's, it's specifying that an object can serve as the terminus in a certain kind of relationship, but it's described in a passive way. Um, in reality, what I want to argue is that for Aquinas, to be intelligible is to belong to a certain kind of genus. There's a wonderful text on that I put on your handout uh, from De Veritate 8.6, where he describes the genus of intelligibles as follows. Quote, nothing prevents something from being in act in one respect and in potency in another, just as a diaphanous body is indeed actually a body, but only potentially colored. Similarly, it is possible for something to be a being actually, which is only in potency in the genus of intelligibles. Now there's a grade of act and potency in beings because something is only in potency, the famous prime matter, and something is only in act, namely God, and something is in act and, and in potency, namely everything else in between. And in the same way, in the genus of intelligibles, there is something that is only in act, namely the divine essence, and something that is only in potency, namely the human possible intellect, which is in this way placed in the order of intelligibles as prime matter in the order of sensibles, as the commentator, that's a Averroes, says about De Anima III. But all angelic substances are intermediate, having something of potency and of act, not only in the genus of beings, but also in the genus of intelligibles, in genere intelligibilium. The description of intelligibility here is highly metaphysically charged. The members of the genus of intelligibles are not extramental things. They are not the essences of things. They are not the contents of concepts. Rather, they are beings in actuality, all of which are intellects, such as God, angels, and the human intellect. Aquinas regularly opposes this genus of intelligibles to the genus of corporeal things, or sensible things, or natural things. 
And the point of his doing so, I contend, is to distinguish intelligible and body as the two fundamental genre in his category of substance. Now, of course, we need to make an extra distinction there because he thinks that there's no natural genus of body. In fact, the natural genre are celestial body and terrestrial body, so there's really three. But it's a little easier for us to just think of them as two, intelligible and body. And creatures must fall into one or the other. Aquinas writes that the immaterial and the material, the corruptible and the incorruptible, have diverse modes of potency and actuality, and therefore diverse modes of being, and are therefore said to be diverse genre. And in De Veritate 8.9, he writes, material things and intelligible things belong in every way to diverse genre. For things that do not share a matter do not share a genus. Speaking even more bluntly, De Potentia 7.10, the thing that is outside the soul is in every way outside the intelligible genus, end quote. The distinguishing of intelligible being from corporeal being is consistent with Aquinas' well-known claim that intelligibility presupposes incorporeality. So he says, every intelligible either is immune from matter itself or abstracted by the action of intellect from matter. Significantly, Aquinas never describes material things or essences instantiated in material individuals as intelligible, except to say that they are intelligible in potency. And there's a very special sense in which we have to understand that. We could talk about that in the Q&A. Treeness in this oak tree on the lawn can only ever be potentially intelligible because it exists in the tree in an enmattered condition. And Aquinas says, no form existing in matter is intelligible in actuality, but only in potency. Or he says, sensibles are not of themselves intelligibles. Now these texts begin to make no sense if we think take intelligibility in a merely functional sense, such that we're just simply talking about a capacity to be known. What he's describing is the fact that things that belong to the sensible genus, that belong to the genus of bodies, do not have intelligible being. Things that have intelligible being belong to a different genus than corporeal things. So intelligible is a positive name for incorporeal being. It's perhaps a bit of a provocative thought here. Uh, we tend to think about incorporeality as being a merely negative notion but I would argue that Aquinas actually gives us positive content to fill in this notion of what is incorporeal, and what is incorporeal is actually what is intelligible. And the division of substance into corporeal and incorporeal is a bifurcation, whereas corporeal and intelligible describe those same genre in terms of their positive distinguishing features. That's my first thesis. Second thesis. Intelligibility is convertible with intellectuality. Now, we already saw in the above passage from De Veritate 8.6 that Aquinas' genus of intelligibles is populated by intellects, God, angels, and the human intellect. Indeed, he tends to call one and the same genus interchangeably a genus of, or order of intellects, but also a genus or order of intelligibles. We've also seen him speak of separate forms interchangeably as intelligible forms and intellectual forms. All the members of this genus are intellects. Now wait, we might say. What about abstracted forms? What about the abstracted essences of tree or stone? 
After all, Aquinas holds that they are made intelligible by being abstracted through matter. Why does he never list abstracted essences among the members of the genus of intelligibles? The reason I would suggest is that Aquinas' metaphysics has no room for anything like immaterialized stone as a kind of bare, lifeless, immaterial object of thought. And it is here, finally, that Aquinas' concept of intelligibility starts to get really interesting or disturbing, take your pick. What I want to propose is that just as many Platonists construed the forms as thoughts or intellects, Aquinas also holds that intelligible realities are, by their essence, intellectual realities. In other words, on his view, anything that is actually intelligible is actually intellectual, and vice versa. Thus, immaterialized, actually intelligible stone is not an inert, immaterial entity in the intellect or beheld by the intellect. Rather, it is nothing other than someone's intellect in actuality. Example. The most impressive example of Aquinas' commitment to the convertibility I've been describing appears in the following unexpectedly playful thought experiment, which he offers in the disputed questions on spiritual creatures, one, response to objection 12. He says this. This is my favorite text in the whole works of Aquinas. It is on your handout. If a box were to subsist by itself without matter, it would be self-understanding. For freedom from matter is the principle of intellectuality. And hence, an immaterial box would be the same as an intelligible box. End quote. This is not just a one-off remark. Aquinas says the same thing in considering a rejected theory of what happens to the substantial form of bread after the consecration of the Eucharist. He says, quote, if the substantial form remained together with its matter after the consecration, then the bread would remain. And that would, of course, be contrary to the doctrine of transubstantiation, since the substance of bread is supposed to be to give way to the substance of Christ. But Aquinas continues, the form of bread does not remain without its matter either, since, he says, then it would already be an actually intelligible form and therefore an intellect. The form of bread has to go away completely, otherwise in transubstantiation you would have Christ plus bread intellect. Right? <laughs> we don't want that. These examples show not only that every immaterial form is an intelligible form, but also that every intelligible form is an intellect. As Aquinas puts it in an early text, quote, just as the principle of particularization is matter, so too intelligibility is owed to form. Whence form is the principle of cognition, and therefore it is necessary, it's remarkable, that every form existing per se, separate from matter, is of an intellectual nature, end quote. So we must therefore resist the tendency to think of the intelligible, the intelligible, as an inert object over and against the intellect, as a knowing or receiving subject. The intelligible is not in the intellect. 
nor does it confront intellect, nor is it grasped by intellect. Rather, Aquinas tells us that intellect and intelligibility are related as potency and actuality for the very same being belonging to the same genus. So here's Summa Contra Gentiles 255. He says, also on your handout, the intelligible is the proper perfection of the intellect, whence intellect in act and intelligible in act are one. So it is proper to the intellect, intelligible insofar as it is intelligible, must be proper to the intellect insofar as it is such, namely intellect, because the perfection and the perfectible are one in genus. And in, in uh, commentary on the metaphysics 12.8, he says, the intellect is related to the intelligible as potency to act and perfectible to perfection. And just as the perfectible is susceptible of perfection, so too the intellect is susceptible of its intelligible. And I take it there that he's um, disambiguating the term susceptive here so that we shouldn't think about this as reception, properly speaking, but he's telling us how we should interpret reception-like language. We should be saying that this is to be understood in terms of the relationship of perfectible and perfection. And in an early text, commentary on Boethius's De Trinitate 1-2, response to objection four, he says, intellect and intelligible are of one genus as potency and actuality. So what does this all mean? It means that an intelligible is the intellect itself as actualized. Or we can say the intellect is the potency whose actuality is the intelligible. It's the same thing. Either way, the point is clear. There are not two different realities here that come into conjunction or composition with each other, but rather one reality that either exists in actuality or in potency in the human soul. Nothing is actually intelligible unless it is an actual intellect. And intelligible is not an inert, incorporeal object. It is a living intellect in actuality. Thesis three. Now we might ask ourselves, what kind of being is this? A being that is both intellect and intelligible. This is what I want to examine in the third thesis. We just want to make the case that intelligible being is intrinsically self-manifesting. Self-manifestation is the alternative to bodily existence. And this being, wherever it is found, is essentially lit up to itself, essentially self-appropriating. In other words, an instance of intellectual, intelligible being, whether that's an angel as a subsisting intelligible form or the partially actualized human intellect, just is nothing other than an episode of self-manifestation. This is why Aquinas calls intellectual being light this is a text from the uh, commentary in the sentences, which I'm not going to read in the interest of time. Now, the brightness, this, the, the, the key here, I think, to understanding this is that the brightness of intellectual, intelligible being is not a manifestation to something else, some viewer standing off at a distance, approaching it from the outside. Rather, intellectual, intelligible being is necessarily manifest to itself. Aquinas makes this point by insisting that anything intelligible in act understands itself. 
And we saw that already in my favorite quote from the disputed questions on spiritual creatures, where he said that the intelligible immaterial box turned out to be a case of self-understanding. Yes? No? Okay. He says, if a box were to subsist by itself without matter, it would be self-understanding. And similarly, in the quote we saw from Summa Conjure Gentiles 298, uh, oh, maybe that's, no, that's not on your handout, actually, I'm sorry. Um, when Aquinas insists that angels are essentially intelligible forms in actuality in the genus of intelligibles, he insists that the implication is not that Gabriel is therefore understood by any old angel, but rather that Gabriel understands himself. So he says, understanding occurs insofar as what is actually understood is one with the intellect in act. This is an example where intellectum um, actually means the same as intelligible. Whence a separate substance, although it is intelligible in act, nevertheless is not understood in itself except by the intellect with which it is one. Another curious example occurs in Summa Conjure Gentiles 282 in explaining an absurdity that would result if a non-human animal's soul survived death. My husband worked on animal souls for his dissertation, and for a while, all anyone ever asked him for years afterwards was, does Aquinas think my dog is going to heaven? <laughs> so this is where Aquinas says, your dog is not going to heaven. <laughs> so he says, every form separate from matter is understood in act. For the agent intellect makes species intelligible in act insofar as it abstracts them from matter as was clear from what was said above. But if the soul of a non-human animal persists after the body is corrupted, then it will be a form separate from matter. And then it will be a form understood in act, intellectum in actu. But in separate things, what is knowing and what is understood are the same, as Aristotle said in De Anima III. Therefore, the non-human animal soul, if it persisted after the body, will be intellectual which is impossible, end quote. So we see here Aquinas reasoning from the claim that immaterial forms are actually understood to the claim that they are intellectual. And clearly the missing piece here is that an actually understood form is actually understood by itself. Otherwise such a form wouldn't need to be intellectual necessarily, it could be understood by something else and be actually understood. But if it's actually understood in immaterial, it has to be actually understood by itself. So he takes it to be obvious that every instance of intellectual intelligible being is necessarily self-knowing, such that if the dog's soul could survive the death of the dog, it would become an intellectual self-knowing form. These are not isolated remarks. They show us that for Aquinas, intellectual intelligible being has the special characteristic of being manifest and not manifest to some third-party viewer, but manifest to itself. This should not be a very surprising claim. It is implied in the claim that Aristotle adopts from Aquinas adopts from Aristotle and the Aristotelian commentary tradition that the intellect becomes intelligible to itself in receiving the intelligible. What is the philosophical significance of holding that the non-bodily genus of being is self-manifesting? 
I suggest that we should understand Aquinas as defending a view of immaterial being as fundamentally the very stuff of which intellectual experience is made. It may be helpful to compare to a commonplace distinction in contemporary philosophy of mind between the subjective and the objective dimensions of thought. So analytic philosophers of mind say that the subjective properties of thought are the ones that are, quote, merely phenomenal, often described as what it is like, or the conscious feel, or the qualia, available only from the inside of thought it itself, so what it feels like to think. Whereas in contrast, the objective properties of thought are supposed to belong to an underlying stuff that is mind-independent and analyzable in terms of real ontological categories and which is responsible in some way for the feel of the subjective phenomenon. So suppose that I'm listening to Beethoven's Fifth Piano Concerto. Using this distinction, the objective features of my auditory experience would be the ones that are in principle available for anyone to study. The vibrating of my eardrum, the firing of certain neurons, or an immaterial activity, depending on your account of sensation. In contrast, the subjective features are available only to me, the one living this phenomenon. So that would be my distinct first-person perspective of the experience, the auditory character, which is different from an olfactory character of experience. The experience of tracking the melody to completion, the raw feeling of floating in sounds, and on this distinction, this is, a, this is subje a subjective character of the experience, and so it's something that's only accessible to me. And what I want to argue is that in Aquinas' view of intellectual intelligible being, what we see is a certain collapsing of this subjective objective distinction. Self-manifestation just is what immaterial being is objectively. Immaterial being is not some non-cognitive inert stuff behind and beyond our phenomenological experience of stones and trees. Rather, it just is the living intellectual self-manifestation of stones and trees within us. Immaterial being is phenomenological all the way down. What it is like turns out to be one of the kinds of what is. So to summarize, if we refer again to De Veritate 8.6, the view is something like this. For Aquinas, being is divided into corporeal being in the genus body and the other kind of being, which is intellectual intelligible being. Although we have a tendency to think of the mental as less real than the mental, consider how often we say things like, it was all in your mind in a dismissive way. For Aquinas, intellectual intelligible being is not less real than bodily being. It is just as real, if not more real, because it is more simple and less subject to contrariety. This kind of being is the very being of thought, which is equally the being of the thinker. There is only one kind of being that is both at once. Let me see where we are on time. Okay. So last section, human knowers as limited participants in self-manifesting being. All I've done 
this far in the talk is to provide the fundamental bare bones conceptual framework for reorienting our approach to Aquinas' noetics along metaphysical lines. Instead of thinking of thought as connecting us with things, we should be thinking of thought as a kind of being to which we are in potency, a self-manifestation that we acquire intermittently. And then we can see that the central philosophical interests for such an account are going to be the standard metaphysical questions that apply to any nature and specifically to any living nature. We should be asking, for instance, in what kinds of entities does this kind of being naturally occur? What causes bring it about? What kinds of subjects are in potency to it? What kinds of activities does it perform and under what conditions? Toward what end is it developing? In fact, these are the problems that largely consume Aquinas' attention in his own ex-professor writing about the intellect. Problems about how the agent intellect and the phantasm efficiently cause intelligibles in us. Problems about whether a bodily organ or the form of a body can be in potency to such being. Problems about whether having intellectual being only in potency undermines the definition of the human being as rational animal, and so forth. In contrast, he spends barely any ex-professo time at all discussing our relationship to extramental things. There are a plethora of unanswered questions at this point, of course. How do we account for the intentionality of thought? What about judgment or reasoning? What should we make of the claim that intelligible species are likenesses, and so forth? Space does not permit me to tackle all these questions here, but what I would like to do, we could talk about them in the Q&A, but what I would like to do in this third section is just to focus on one of the metaphysical problems that be, we become free to see in Aquinas' theory of intellect when we're released from having to think only about how intelligible species are vehicles for connecting the mind to the world. The problem I want to talk about is hardly ever mentioned by scholars, but is actually one that Aquinas himself spends quite a lot of time discussing, and that also makes it possible to position his intellectual metaphysics in an interesting way relative to his Greco-Arabic sources. And the problem that I have in mind is this. Who or what has self-manifesting being? The short answer for Aquinas is that angels have it, permanently and by nature, whereas we have it intermittently and by acquisition, though this answer is more complicated than it first appears. So, to, for instance, it should be clear by now that Aquinas' examples of the immaterial box and the immaterial bread form illustrate exactly what he thinks an angel is. Angels, on his view, are forms that subsist without matter, hence intelligible forms, hence intellectual forms. They are not intelligible forms that happen to be intellectual. Rather, they are intellects precisely because they are pure forms. And insofar as they are intelligible, they are actually known to themselves. And there's many texts on this point that we could go through. Um, but the point is that among creatures, angels are, by nature, discrete units of self-manifestation. In contrast, the human intellect is, quote, only in potency in the genus of intelligibles, like prime matter in the order of sensibles. So in Aquinas' view, the human intellect is not a faculty that performs some function of thinking, like a part of a mechanism, but rather a potential for acquiring self-manifesting being. It must gain its proper actuality 
in order to gain actual status in the genus of intelligibles. But there are two important differences between the self-manifesting being that angels have naturally and the one that we acquire. First of all, and this is a really interesting twist in Aquinas' theory of human knowing, because we acquire this being partly from outside, as it were, it is always at once the self-manifestation of this individual intellect and the self-manifestation of something else. So take, for instance, a biologist, Max, who is studying different types of reptiles, abstracting intelligible forms from his sensory experiences. The self-manifesting being that comes to be in Max, actualizing his potency in the soul, will have the character of some nature that is not Max's, alligator, snake, or lizard. So when Max understands alligators, he has effectively acquired an episode of alligatorish self-manifestation. You might think about what you actually want to study now that you know that this is how thinking works. <laughs> this means that on the picture we find in Aquinas, it is one and the same thing for Max's intelligibly actualized intellect to be manifest to itself and for intellectually existing intelligible alligator to be manifest to itself. For humans, knowing and self-knowing turn out to be one and the same reality for self-manifestation of self-manifestation. The second important difference between angels and us is that self-manifesting being is accidental in us, whereas it belongs to an angel substantially. As a result, self-manifesting being is composite in us, but simple in angels. It comes to be in us when some subject, the human form of human soul, acquires a form, the abstracted intelligible species. Unlike an angel, which is a subsisting intelligible form, the human abstracted intelligible species does not subsist, but is received as a modification of something that does subsist, namely the human soul. And that is why Aquinas insists that the species is not intelligent in itself, and it's worth pointing this out because it always comes up in discussion in, in connection with this, this topic. Someone always says, but doesn't this make the intelligible species an intellect also, right? Um, but Aquinas denies that that's the case because the intelligible species is not a subsisting immaterial form, but rather an accidental modification of a subsisting form. The species is only a formal principle of intellectual operation. He describes this in his commentary on the sentences. So the human intellect and the abstracted species become actual in the order of intelligibles merely accidentally as part of the one thing that they together compose, the species informed intellect in the act of understanding, which is also, this is getting really technical, the intelligible in actuality. So to try to sort this out, what this means is that the human intellect informed by an actually intelligible species is analogous to a quantity of water whose potency for heat is accidentally perfected by acquiring the form of heat. Whereas the angelic intellect is analogous to a hypothetical, self-subsisting form of heat. That's the analogy that Aquinas himself suggests in Summa Theologiae Prima Pars 56.1. So would it be true to say that we humans acquire intermittently the same kind of being that angels have? Yes and no. There is just one, or I should say with Aquinas, in a way yes and in a way no. 
there is just one genus of intelligibles, and we are in actuality in it when we are knowing. So to that extent, the being we acquire is the being that is their birthright, self-manifesting being. Nonetheless, precisely because we must acquire it, we have it to a lesser degree of perfection, independence on what is other than us, and in a more composite and accidental way. Thus, Aquinas describes humans as intellectual by participation, just as the fiery red-hot poker has fire by participation. The idea that we are intellective only by participation captures the dependency, partiality, and accidentality of our membership in that genus. Okay, there are some things here that I'm going to skip regarding the heritage of this view and why Aquinas puts human souls and angels together in a single order of intellects and intelligibles. What he's doing is um, really resisting a tradition that comes to him from Pseudo-Dionysius, which distinguishes between an order of souls or an order of rational entities versus an order of intellects, where the order of intellects is really different from the order of souls. And Aquinas, um, already in the commentary on the sentences, brings those two orders together into a single order, which is the order of intellects, to which both angels and human souls belong. Um, and there's reasons why he does that, connected with how he's reading Aristotle's De Anima through uh, Averroes' long commentary on De Anima, um, but we can also talk about that in more detail later. So now I move to the conclusion. Why have people not noticed this doctrine of intelligibility in Aquinas? I think there's two reasons. One of them is that we live after Aquinas, of course, and so like everyone who ever lived after Aquinas, we have a tendency to read Aquinas in light of what comes after him, rather than as an inheritor of what comes before. And I think that means that um, we tend to read into him some of the concerns about skepticism and illusion and deception that became especially uh, prominent or even neuralgic in the later medieval period, moving into the early modern period. Um, questions about representationalism and optical illusions and things like that, which are just not really central to Aquinas' account of cognition and not part of the general discourse that he is um, having in the middle of the 13th century. So the connective model, I think, the connective way of reading Aquinas tends to come from reading him in light of these later considerations rather than in connection with the problems he himself is concerned with. But the second reason is, I think, a tendency to avoid anything in Aquinas that smacks of approaching the human soul from above in what is considered to be a Neoplatonic uh, approach. So there's a fear there of committing him to something that might end up looking a lot like dualism. And so I think the worry is that if we, if we acknowledge that angels and human souls belong to the same order, they both have self-manifesting being, they both belong to the order of intellects or intelligibles, um, yes, they belong in different ways, but there's a, there's a way in which when we approach human beings not as the uppermost soul, starting from inanimate forms and working our way up through the different kinds of soul and 
reaching the human soul as the topmost kind of soul. That's the approach from below. If we approach him from above, we're looking down toward the, the soul from above, we're looking down toward the human soul from God angels as descending the genus of intelligibles to the lowest member. Um, and so that might put human souls worryingly in a framework that's too close to angels. Um, but that's a thing Aquinas did himself. And so I think we have to let Aquinas speak for himself in that, in that regard and not dial down the aspects of his thought that um, suggest that they might go in a direction that um, he himself resisted in other contexts. So I don't think any of this actually commits Aquinas to any kind of dualism or interferes with his broad anthropological project of distinguishing human souls essentially from um, angels. But you can see how putting them in the same genus does sort of run a little bit in tension to that project. Now I want to conclude by noting what I think is perhaps the most shockingly Neoplatonizing implication of ascribing to Aquinas this metaphysical model of mind in the way I've been doing. So as I've been arguing, Aquinas' category of substance is divided fundamentally between self-manifesting being, intellectual and intelligible, and let's say terrestrial bodies and then also celestial bodies. We can leave that aside. Aquinas tells us that intelligible being is more actual than bodily being because intelligibles are immaterial. They exist without a material substrate and whatever exists without a material substrate is more actual. And to have actuality, of course, is just to exist, to be a being, in the paradigmatic and proper sense. So why should immaterial being be more actual? Aquinas holds that form is the principle of actual being, ends in actu, whereas matter is the principle of potency. And furthermore, in material things, form is limited by matter. Similarly, matter plays a limiting role in preventing form from being intelligible, as Aquinas explains in a very interesting passage from De Ente Essentiae 3, in explaining why we should not posit matter in naturally intelligible substances, that is, angels. Quote, and I'm sorry, I think this did not make it onto the handout. He says, we see that forms are not intelligible in actuality, except when they are separated from matter and its conditions. Whence in every knowing substance, there must be full immunity from matter, such that it neither has matter as a part of itself, nor is a form impressed in matter as material forms are. Nor should someone say that not every kind of matter impedes intelligibility, but only bodily matter. And here he's thinking of interlocutors that posit a spiritual matter that would enter into the composition of angels, for instance. For matter is only called bodily matter insofar as it is standing under a bodily form. And if impeding intelligibility belonged only to bodily matter, then ultimately the impeding of intelligibility would belong to matter due to the bodily form. And that cannot be the case because even bodily form is intelligible in actuality, indeed every form is such, insofar as it is abstract from matter. And abstract doesn't mean made into an abstract object, but it literally means taken out of from matter, separated from matter. Um, end quote. So Aquinas here explains the existence of non-intelligible beings by asserting that matter adds a block 
or obstacle to intelligibility in the structure of being. All forms always would be intelligible forms belonging to the intelligible genus if it were not for the obstacle posed by matter. So there's an, a distinction in the background here from Alexander of Aphrodisias, and mattered form is only potentially intelligible. Form without matter is what is actually intelligible. And this picture of how created reality is structured turns out to be startlingly close to the common Neoplatonic picture of paradigmatic being as intellect and its intelligibles. Similarly for Aquinas, if to be is to be actual, and actuality is intelligible unless impeded, then intelligible being is the default for, or paradigm case of, being. From the perspective of a neutral observer of the whole of reality, as opposed to our limited embodied intellectual perspective, which necessarily begins from an experience of this body or that body, from the neutral perspective, what needs to be explained is not the existence of beings outside the genus of bodies, but rather the existence of beings outside the genus of intelligibles. It is not non-bodies that are the puzzle in the grand scheme of things, but non-intelligibles. Everything would be its own light if it were immaterial. That is why the flashlight beam of human thought is needed as the place where a dark world comes piecemeal to light. Thank you. <laughs>